Cat Haunted with your host, Matt Strawn and Allie. Welcome back, guys, to episode 93 of Let's Get Haunted. Episode 93. This is a good episode because three goes into nine three times. You're and right. Three is the magic number. That's true. Nine is my unlucky number, but three is a pretty chill number. And Wait, I, nine's unlucky? Why? I don't know. I just feel like it looks like <laughs> mischievous. I okay. don't know. Like it looks distrustful. Nine is unlucky to you because you don't like the way it looks, not because yes. you've had like an experience no, with like, it. Do you ever like look at a number and you're like, this number knows something and I, it's not telling me about it? Yeah, I mean, I guess because when I'm doing multiple choice and it's just a straight guess, you yeah. know, you're like, okay. you have a feeling, right? Like, you right. have a feeling. I feel like when I picture the number nine, I like think of a nine that's like red and like oh. sharp and like sharp. It's like there's fire associated with it. I don't know. <laughs> I don't like it. I've always felt this way about the number nine. It is a distrustful number. Wow. Now we know, guys. Maybe someone who does numerology can like validate that claim or or I actually think I've never voiced this before. So really? if someone tell me what does this mean? And you know what? Yes, I agree with you. Somebody who knows numerology or somebody else that gets feelings about numbers, let me know if you think nine is sketchy. Mm, it's yeah. just like hanging out in a dark alley, like waiting. For nine. You, you it know, does like, sort take of take your wallet. It sort of looks like a noose right oh it does yeah well, I, I guess six would look more like a noose right maybe because six 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 is bad oh, somehow right. on a subconscious level i think nine is also but six and nine is good that's true oh my god you're so <laughs> right yeah Damn, this is a conundrum it really is welcome you, to let's yeah. get haunted guys welcome welcome to our show natalia do you have i'm see now i'm like not going to stop thinking about this are there any other numbers that you that you like get a bad feeling about i was thinking about that when you were saying that and and then i was like well i kind of don't like four and then i was like no you're just trying to be cool like Alyssa, and like have i was just about to say. to say four though so maybe we're really? on the same wavelength like i feel like four is borderline like yeah. four could go either way four just freaks me out because it's not special you know <laughs> so why would someone choose it like it's right. not an odd number it's not special right so yeah you know. yeah you're right like four is never anyone's lucky number right maybe 44 44 i feel like that's a little cooler yeah but four like all no. right yeah i i for some reason i don't know if this really happened or not in my mind i'm getting like a flashback of like someone's soccer jersey with a four on it that oh. when i was little kids and i didn't like yeah, that like, person that person yeah like they're just not that cool right they probably like tried to trip someone on the other team <laughs> and it's like sir this is youth <laughs> soccer like <laughs> chill the fuck out your parents did not raise you right yeah yeah like be. seven is good Seven's always good. It's gold, right? Like right. I picture like a golden metal seven with yes. like the sun shining behind Three it. sevens is lucky. Lucky yes. number seven. Mm -hmm. It's just seven is famous for being lucky. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think 11 also similarly, probably because right. it rhymes with seven. Seven. Great number. And seven eleven. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Great. Is... You can get all kinds of good stuff from there. One time I got um, food poisoning from a seven eleven when oh. I was in middle school. Oh, did you try to eat the like hot dogs or something? No. You know what I did is I got one of those prepackaged muffins. Yeah. And I bit into it and I was eating it and I was like, everything's fine. It tastes kind of bad, but so does everything at 7-Eleven. Like you don't go to 7-Eleven because you want something good. You yeah. go to 7-Eleven because your bus lets off right, right. there. Yeah. 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 
<laughs> so I go and I'm eating this muffin and then like halfway through the muffin, I like look down and it just has mold in the center. Oh no. And I like immediately threw up. So maybe it was psychosomatic and I would have been fine if I hadn't seen the mold. But either way, I ate a fucking moldy muffin. You could have saved that and gotten a little like payout. Yeah, maybe. At the time. I mean, what are the, what am I going to do? Like go back in there and the guy takes my muffin and just throws it away immediately and there's no evidence. I don't know. The, I always wonder about things like that. Like sometimes people sue because they got like a weird piece of chicken or something and I'm like how did someone allow this like how you know like how (laughs) did this this opportunity passed so many people who could have just smacked that chicken onto the ground and been like, what chicken? Exactly. And yet still here I'm reading about it in the New York Times. Ex- yes. Exa- yes. I completely agree. The only exception to that is, you know how people like to say, our culture is so Sue happy, which I agree with. Yes. But the example that they use is that lady with the hot McDonald's coffee right, that burned she sued her. McDonald's. But actually, like, they were totally in the wrong for that. If you yeah. like read about it, she really? like did she get like third degree burns or something on her vagina? <gasps> they spilled it on her. They I don't know if they spilled it on her or if they just like literally gave her. I want to something insane. I'm going to say a number that's fake right now that like is not what the degrees Fahrenheit was, right. but like a thousand degrees no. Fahrenheit like doesn't make any sense. And they handed it to her without, and they like wouldn't give her a cup holder or something. And then she put it like in between her legs oh as she was my driving, God. and it was so fucking hot and it just like spilled all <gasps> over her vagina and she was old as shit oh no and went to the hospital and the only thing she wanted from them was for them to reimburse her medical bills that's it she wasn't even asking for like a billion dollars yeah she just told them like hey you guys gave me a 1000 degrees fahrenheit <laughs> cup of coffee that burned the lips off my vagina oh, no and she had to get skin grafts <gasps> and it was like fucked up situation oh yeah and mcdonald's was like we'll reimburse you for the cost of the coffee but that's it for like four dollars yeah probably two, less probably yeah because this was a long time ago it was the 90s i think yeah oh my god and yeah, so you're then right. she got an attorney because she was like this is like stuck with hundreds of thousands of dollars of mm-hmm. medical bills plus like rehab and skin grafts and, and so, trauma trauma yeah i don't i mean and she won and she should have won yeah i mean i was just thinking like the trauma of having to fucking tell a story where you burned your vagina at mcdonald's like hundreds of times and to everyone exactly and pictures of it were shown in court Ugh. like because you have to prove that it really happened yeah trauma on a so many different levels yeah yeah i'm no, i don't like that no that's super fucking haunted that's an example of like one of the most negative hauntings right, right? yeah i can think of very few things more haunted than that right well to go back to what you were talking about originally <laughs> i'm glad you didn't sue over the moldy muffin right and instead you were just like oh this muffin's got mold in it this was an unfortunate event exactly i, was, I will just go and... into the bushes and vomit yeah and then i'm going home and i will never tell my mother about this because i don't think i'm supposed to be saved saving my lunch money for 7-Eleven. <laughs> Do you remember <sighs> when I had a 7-Eleven themed party? when I like lived in Silver Lake. Yes, I do yes. remember that. Yes, it was. Uh, this was during the time when I was living with that weird roommate that got ketamine off the dark web. This was. Yes. Now I know that there's like ketamine clinics and stuff. Yeah, and, and it's and totally it's, fine now. Like really had a PR change. This was, 
before ketamine had right. clinics. This was before when doctors were like not going to even say that word out loud. Right. This is before big ketamine paid right. to lobby <laughs> the state government into changing its image. Yes. Yeah. And so I just want you guys to picture I can't I couldn't have been older than like 25 years old. There's no way. No, I want you guys you were younger than that. Yeah, yeah, really young. I want you guys to picture Natalia living in a r- house with random people from Twitter. Yeah. One of them doesn't have a job and is just doing drugs off of the dark web. I am like getting up at five o'clock in the morning to go teach my six and six a.m. Pilates class. So we're just like on totally different wavelengths. But I always right. pass that person as they're like in their K hole at seven a.m. Yeah. and I'm like coming back from work. You know? What yeah, I mean? yeah. But anyways, uh, that year I really was happy because I had a backyard with a trampoline. It was in so it sick. I and will a barbecue say, grill. Super fucking sick. Yes, and it's just the little things in life that brought me joy at that time totally. in my life. And I was like gonna have a Seven Eleven themed party because I really liked going drinking Red Bull. And it was it not. It was a time. Yeah, it was a time. <laughs> it was a time. Now, was it a good time or a bad time? I would just call it a time. It was a time. <laughs> it was a time to be alive that yeah. we were present for and alive for. Right. Was it fun? I Sometimes I think, like, it was fun because I can remember taking, like, Instagram stories of, like, raccoons in my backyard and, like, us, like, on the trampoline screaming, right. like, pop punk songs and stuff. But I'm like, was that fun or were we all in prison? Like, yeah. <laughs> By our own life choices. You we know? were in prison and that was like our one hour a day of right. being let out of ourselves yeah. and enjoying recreation. Right. Yeah. yeah. In that instance, like everything's going to seem pretty fucking fun. Right. I had a great time. No no regrets. No regrets. Yeah. No um, regrets. Yeah, it, yeah. No regrets. It was a good, it was <laughs> a good time. One thing that my brain just thought of is that I think it's four. Because remember how we said four was unlucky? We yeah. remember. I think in... In Chinese, if oh. I remember correctly, four sounds like death. So four is an unlucky number. I seem to remember your friend Lydia telling us about this during one of our episodes. Am I wrong? Maybe. Yeah. No, it was. If it wasn't four, it was another number. And then, sorry. You know what? It was bad. Whatever but the case the was. The point is there is a number that sounds like the word for death in Chinese. And the Chinese do not like that number. So they literally pick their own phone numbers that don't have oh. those numbers in it. Oh, wow. Yeah, That's I That's a whole that. other level of, like, just fucking sick paranormal shit. I know. Like, that's like, really dope. They're like, you know what? I really don't have time to get haunted. Fuck that. Fuck if it's that. as easy as not having the number four in my phone number, why would I not do that? You know what's funny about that is now that's making me think, because some of the phone numbers at my work, so, like, everybody has, like, a work cell phone, right? Yeah. And some of the numbers, for whatever reason, Verizon gave issued them and a bunch of them start with 666 mm. and i do remember this being like a point of contention for some people like when when they first got their cell phones being like i'm very uncomfortable with this yeah. like i do not want this and then over time everyone just kind of got over it because they were like well i guess i could pay for my own cell phone and get reimbursed like 20 bucks a month for the use or i could just have a brand new iphone right that has 666 in the number yeah they're like i'll just i'll let it pass yeah i'll this, let it slide just this once in the name of consumer Consumerism, I will consort with the devil. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Well, Allie, do you have any personal hauntings this week? Do have a positive haunting. You and I both have a positive haunting to talk about. What is it? We won the award. <gasps> oh, for best ghost stories. For best ghost stories podcast in the Paranormal Podcast Awards. Yes. At the end of October. And we are 
fucking excited yes. about it. All we do is win, 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 no matter what. what except what? for those times that we lose. <laughs> uh, we did not win the podcast awards, but we were nominated for those. And so that's also just an honor to be nominated, as people often say. I just think it's so much more fun to be obnoxious when you win than humble. Like That's true. Even though we don't have haters that I know of, like I just am going to go ahead and say fuck all the haters. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for voting for us and those yes. award shows. With that being said, Natalia, I think we need to get into our story today. Oh, I am so excited I didn't have to do anything. Yes. I just get to sit here and I get very excited when it's not my turn to tell a story. This is also <laughs> like a very, I hope that I wrote it well because this is one of those stories where when I was researching it, I was genuinely so enthralled mm. that I don't know if it's going to come across in my writing or not because I was just sitting there reading in the dark with the glow of my laptop illuminating right. my face at two in the morning just like, and then what happened? And then <gasps> what happened? And so I hope, I a hope that old, this comes through. A good old rabbit hole. A good old rabbit hole. And I quickly want to shout out our donors for yes. this episode. Karina B and Jesse H. Really appreciate you guys and your generosity. Thank you. That's incredible. I also want to shout out once again, Shelby H who donated a hundred. Shelby. She probably thought, hey, I bet they're not going to say my name again. Shelby. But you're wrong. Joke's on you. We fucking love you. And Brielle S who keeps it 100 all the time thank you guys thank so you much. so much love you all very much if you'd like to donate to the show figure it out not yeah. gonna tell you how to do it except yeah. for you can read about it in the show notes for this episode yes we do post the links there yes okay without further ado natalia are you ready i am beyond ready for for this episode i almost said the title and i don't want to like give oh i'm super ready i almost said it okay. is it christmas themed Yes. <gasps> it is Christmas themed to what? get us in the spirit. Okay, 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 okay. Okay. Do you guys hear, do you hear what sounds like a whirlpool or a bunch of marbles rolling <laughs> rolling around in a funnel? Like if there was a funnel right. and then- Made of wood. Made of wood and then someone put a bunch of marbles in it and they all started like going around the funnel. Right. Yes. I definitely hear it. Um, we, Natalia and I had a conversation off camera just now. We were like, we got to make sure that people understand that this is not just some shitty background music we're putting in <laughs> of like a bunch of people bowling at the same time. <laughs> this is uh, really happening in real life. It is a noise. Uh, apparently the studio above where we we record is has just been purchased or rented by some tattoo artists yeah. and they're rolling around a bunch of furniture so if you guys yeah. can hear that i'm sorry but you know what it adds to the ambiance right no for a second i thought it was like surround sound in here i was like oh this is there's lots of noises in there it's all around to me yeah natalia was like am i is this only in my head am yeah. i just haunted yeah. or is this happening in real life right it is so if you are hearing this dear listeners you are not haunted but you might become haunted after I tell you this story. Okay, so I'm dying to know. Christmas story. Hit okay, me. Go. Right. <clears throat> Jingle fucking bells. Jingle fucking bells. Fucking buckle up in Santa's <laughs> sleigh right now and don't fall out. Here we go. It was an overcast morning on Lake Michigan in October 1971. 1971. Milwaukee-based scuba diver Gordon Kent Bell Richard had taken his boat out on the lake with a purpose in mind. Surveying a hand-drawn map in his hands, he navigated towards coordinates off of Two Rivers, Wisconsin, that several local fishermen had pointed out to him over the course of the year. He anchored his small vessel. Strapping his oxygen tanks to his back before adjusting his goggles, Gordon extended a short metal ladder into icy waters and descended. 
just 17 degrees Fahrenheit at the lake's surface, it took a few moments for Gordon's body temperature to regulate itself once submerged. A wet fog skated across the lake's surface, and a cold drizzle fell from the sky. <laughs> he was alone. Why is he doing this? This is horrible. He's going scuba diving in a freshwater cold place by himself. Just like 100% no. Scuba diving alone, no. Look. Scuba diving in freshwater, what the fuck? Scuba diving and it's cold, absolutely not. A, a fog skating across something yep. towards yep. you while it's drizzling? Yep. Gordon built different, okay? Gordon is not yeah. like other scuba divers that take note of the risk. He's going <laughs> balls to the wall, and I'm about to tell you why. Gordon took a deep breath. Today was the day he could feel it. He went under. Gordon gave a mighty kick with his flippers and propelled his body downward, deeper and deeper, until he was surrounded by nothing but darkness. Oh my god. It was quiet. There was something so peaceful about being all alone, floating at the lake's floor. If it weren't so cold, he might feel like a child, not yet born, floating peacefully in its mother's womb, safe from the horrors of the outside world. What's wrong with you, Alyssa? <laughs> but Gordon was not a child, and he could not allow himself to enjoy his weightlessness for more than a few moments for he had a task to perform. Gordon was searching for the Vernon, a 177-foot, 700-ton steamer that had sunk with only one survivor in a storm in October of 1887. Using a handheld underwater sonar, Gordon swam in a straight line, shining his flashlight towards the silty lake bed below. Although his flashlight was crafted specifically for deep dives, the beam of light shooting out from its bulb did not illuminate more than a foot or so in front of him, making him almost entirely reliant on the readings of his sonar. <sighs> Gordon was not at this location by accident. After interviewing many local Lake Michigan fishermen over the past months, he had determined that this was the most likely spot for the sunken ship's remains to have settled. Several of the fishermen had revealed this area to be the site where their nets had snagged on something sturdy when dragging the waters for fish. Suddenly, an anomaly appeared in his sonar. Gordon dove. His flashlight cut through the water, revealing a well-preserved shipwreck resting upright in approximately 172 feet of water. <gasps> According to an article written by Glenn V. Longacre for Prologue magazine, quote, Upon reaching the wreck, Gordon's dive light promptly malfunctioned. No. Leaving him blanketed in murky darkness. No. Without light, he could only survey the wreckage by feeling no. along its hole. Okay, stop. We have to arrest this man. <laughs> I don't know what he did, but he's not right. And I, yeah, I just don't trust him. What the fuck? Gord like I said, Gordon is built different from the average scuba diver. He is so drawn to this mission of finding this ship that he gives zero fucks about what might await him in the deep. So this shipwreck you said went down in the 1800s? 1887. Okay, now I don't know anything about uh, places that I don't care about. So where <laughs> is Milwaukee? 
So this is on Lake Michigan. And I'm okay. going to tell you in just a minute the a mitten. little more about Lake Michigan. Yes. Wait, is the lake shaped as a mitten or is Michigan shaped as a mitten? Great question. Michigan is shaped as a mitten. Okay. Okay. I knew it was one of them. <gasps> he quickly realized that he had not discovered the larger propeller-driven Vernon, but he had stumbled upon the wreck of the elusive Rouse Simmons, a 205-ton, three-masted schooner that had disappeared beneath the waves in a winter gale in November of 1912. When Gordon surfaced, he lay in his boat and yelled for joy. His discovery had ended a mystery that surrounded the fate of one of the most legendary ships to ever sail Lake Michigan's waters and its much-loved captain, for he had discovered the grave of one of the most famous Christmas tree ships and its skipper, Captain Santa. What is are you intrigued yet, Natalia? I have so many questions. Am I can I ask questions? You can ask questions. I just might not answer, depending uh, on how far down in the script I wrote the answers. Oh, okay. So how deep is this water? You said he like propelled himself down for a long time. And 172 it's feet. <sighs> it just That's I, really I'm far. so scared. It's so far down. There's shit visibility. It's dark. And his fucking dive light malfunctions yeah. right when it so I just it's wanted, haunted. I, this is why I said I was so enthralled while reading this story that I don't know right. how it's going to come across. But just imagine being all alone in 17 no. degree Fahrenheit water. And that's at the surface that Lake <sighs> Michigan is 17 degrees Fahrenheit in October. So it's probably like way less. Five. Look, could be five, could be 10, could be could one. Be, yeah. I don't know the don't answer. Know, but it's cold is the but point. But it's cold. And really at that point, does it make a difference? Yeah. Scientists might say yes. I say no. Either Seven- way, I'm uncomfortable. Wait, 17. But if the freezing point of water is like 32 degrees, then mm-hmm. is there ice on top of it? So I don't believe there was ice at this time that he went diving. Okay. Um, but to your point, Lake Michigan does freeze over around December. Oh. So this was October, but it's still very, very cold. And he thinks he found some 1800s shipwreck, but it turns out he found a 1912 shipwreck yes. that has perhaps Santa's body in it. Before I get into the story, because I'm like, literally, I'm about to jump out of my skin <laughs> right now. I want to tell you all about Captain Santa. But first, let me tell you about Lake Michigan for our listeners who are not familiar. Natalia, what do you know about Lake Michigan? Um, it's attached to Michigan. And I think if my elementary history serves me, it splits Michigan in half, not in half, but like there's part of Michigan that's separated by the lake. There's five lakes surrounding Michigan and they're called the Great Lakes. Yes. The largest of these lakes is Lake Michigan. And I just want to say that when most people picture a lake in their minds, maybe this is just me coming from Southern California, but I tend to think of like a stagnant body of water, probably man-made with the sole purpose of providing recreation to nearby citizens because a natural one to me would be like a pond. Like I just didn't grow up with many natural yeah. lakes. Yeah, you know? I heard that people surf on Lake Michigan. That it's like literally like a little ocean. Yeah, it's it's fucking huge. So my point is, get that image of like a man-made lake out of your mind because Lake Michigan is something entirely different. It is actually the largest lake by area. In any one country in the world. What? Yes. It's the largest lake in the world? Yes. The largest lake that's located within the borders of one country. Because I guess there are some lakes where like 
it's so oh, big that it it's like split by right. the one like two countries like all of europe yeah is a lake is a lake probably yeah. but this one is the largest lake by area in any one country in the world which is super impressive yeah so measuring 307 miles long and 118 miles wide at its widest points this massive body of water is located in between the U.S. states of Michigan and Wisconsin, ending just before reaching the Canadian border, and spans a total surface area of 22,404 square miles. Wow. The lake is so large that you actually cannot see the other side of it when you're staring out from its shoreline, giving you the illusion that you're looking out at the ocean, right. not a lake. Yeah. Lake Michigan is also connected to the Gulf of Mexico via the Illinois River and Illinois Waterway, which lead to the Mississippi River. And in the late 20th century, a connection between the Atlantic Ocean and Lake Michigan was constructed to allow larger ocean-going vessels such as container ships to sail through. That's really interesting. And I also read, I didn't put this in here, but I also read a fun fact that even though this was constructed, um, modern container ships can't fit through it because now like oh, our technology's gotten so much so better big. yeah yeah but at least in the late 20th century um cargo ships and container ships coming from overseas could come through lake michigan and like dock in chicago it's so weird to think of a lake that's so big that like sh real ships yeah can go on it totally that's what i'm saying is it's like it's crazy to even think about it's basically like a mini ocean yeah because when i think of a lake i think of like the redneck yacht club you yes. know like part like a bunch of sco schooners schooners and, Schooners, yeah, yeah, and like wakeboarding boats, jet skiers, jet skiers, and yeah, like not a cargo ship. Totally. And I definitely think that Lake Michigan, like you said, like people surf on it sometimes. Mm -hmm. There's definitely like redneck jet ski right. action happening and yes. yacht clubs. But it also is so big and so deep that it can accommodate late 19th century That um, is so scary. Ships. Imagine all of the scary stuff that lives in there. Yes, completely. And there are numerous state and local parks located off the shores of the lake and a number of ferry routes crisscross between Wisconsin and Michigan, shuttling both people and vehicles from one side to the other. So, Natalia, I'm going to show you a map of Lake Michigan and a couple of photographs so that you okay. can describe them to our listeners. Okay. So, I'm going to pull up. Oh, okay. Wow, this is where Wisconsin is. Huh. Okay. <laughs> so, I'm looking at a map. And oh, and Chicago's really close to there, and Detroit and Cleveland. You guys, I've heard of all these places so many times, <laughs> and I really didn't just didn't know where they were. And I'm surprised that they're this close to each other. Huh. Anyone else as surprised as me? <laughs> and if you guys want to see these pictures, you can go to at Let's Get Haunted, where I will be posting the photo dump for our audio only episode today. Okay, here's what I'm gonna say about this map. So if you didn't know this, Wisconsin and Michigan are right next to each other, and then Lake Michigan is splitting them. And uh, on the left of Michigan is Lake Michigan, and then on the right of Michigan is Lake Huron, and then those two lakes make that little mitten shape. Yeah, that's um, a great description. Yeah, and I also didn't realize that Milwaukee and Chicago are like really close to each other on this this map. So that's news to me. Yeah. Um, and then as far as the actual pictures go, yeah. what, do you, what do you think of those? So now I'm looking at some actual photographs. Okay. One is a sunset and it has two people on the shore of what I'm going to assume is Lake Michigan. And yes. yep, it literally looks like a beach. Like this is sand, right? Yeah, it's sand. 
Yeah, it's sand. Mm-hmm. If they didn't test the water, they might just think it was an ocean. Um, and now I'm looking <laughs> at another picture of a lighthouse. And there you can also see there's a bunch of ice. There's like a ton of ice shards that are the, I'm guessing, Lake Michigan as well. Yes. And then the one below that literally looks like Miami or something. It's yes. like clear crystal water with like a white sand beach and then uh, like a metropolitan city. Exactly. And that picture, um, I just wanted to point out that picture of the ice that you described because it's really interesting looking. So that photo is taken from an article for USA Today written by Sarah M. Maniusko. And in her article, she explains that this phenomenon can be found on the lake in the springtime Mm. because during winter, Lake Michigan freezes over. And in the spring, when the waters warm up and the ice starts to melt, the currents underneath the lake surface push the melting ice into these shards that you see. And it's actually very dangerous. Like they're super giant and sharp and you can like actually like cut yourself on them. Oh, wow. That's haunted. Very haunted. Now, a couple more fun facts. You may be surprised to know that Lake Michigan is considered a glacial lake meaning that it was formed when a large glacier eroded the land, melted, and filled the depression underneath it. Oh, I didn't know that. I thought that was really cool. And Lake Michigan is also dotted with many man-made and natural islands, which poke up from above its waters. And just beneath the surface of its waters, you can actually find something called the Milwaukee Reef, which is a natural coral reef that separates the lake into northern and southern sections. I thought coral can only grow in an ocean. I am not sure if it's living or not, but it said that it's a coral reef. I did also read that there's part of a reef that actually is on the land, like an old, old reef. Oh, like like prehistoric. Prehistoric. And it's just full of fossils. <gasps> wow. Really interesting. That is interesting. And according to Wikipedia, the lake fluctuates in depth with the highest lake levels typically occurring over the summer months and the lowest usually occurring in the winter months. The highest level ever reached for the lake occurred in October of 1986. And if you're wondering what kind of aquatic life you might find in Lake Michigan, Wikipedia states the following. Mm. Quote, it was originally home to lake whitefish, lake trout, yellow perch, panfish, largemouth bass, smallmouth bass, and bowfin, as well as some species of catfish. As a result of improvements to the Welland Canal in 1918, an invasion of sea lampreys. That's what I was just about to bring up. Oh, my God. Yes. I thought for sure maybe that was fake. But yes, I I remember reading when I was really young in like one of those books that has a bunch of pictures that's like, this is how exciting the world is. (laughs) Um, That someone literally came to our front door and sold to my mom like that you sell like knives or something. They sold like these like cool encyclopedia books. That's a really sick job, actually. Like instead of selling like Mary Kay cosmetics. It was just a cool book. Yeah. So like, why is the sky blue with like a bunch of cool pictures? And they had a fucking picture of a lamprey and said that they were in Lake Michigan. And if you don't know what a lamprey is, it's literally a monster. It's, it's fucked up. It's a worm and its mouth is just like a bunch of teeth, like hundreds of teeth. And they're like leeches, right? Don't yeah. they like get on you and like suck your blood and shit? I don't know if they suck your blood. I didn't do a lot, a lot of research on it, but... It's apparently a parasitic, like, fish, and it's called a vampire fish. So scary And it's looking. fucked up. It's really fucked up. It's like an eel slash worm it's with not, a bunch of teeth. It's like, if you see a picture of this and you're like, I'm going to go in that lake, that body of water. Then like you're haunted and there's yeah, no Yeah, that's why you. I don't understand. Yeah. 
Yeah. So just imagine our scuba diver from the beginning of the story, just like diving down amongst no. all these lampreys. So, but because of this lamprey invasion, there was a sharp decline in the early 1900s of the trout population. And so what people decided to do, like conservationists decided to do is introduce new types of fish that could survive in the water so that they could like keep up because fish do a lot of shit for the ocean right. yeah i'm not gonna go into it <laughs> yeah fish do a lot like, of shit for the ocean they do a lot of shit so they introduced um salmon they introduced brown trout steelhead trout okay. which is also known as rainbow trout and something called coho which i didn't know what that was but i kept it in here i feel sorry for these new fish they were just like living their life in a environment that was suited for them and then they're like you know what we're just going to put you in a place where if you don't swim fast enough these scary ass lamprey <laughs> yeah. are going to literally kill you exactly and then they had to introduce it's like just a classic tale of mankind fucking shit up and yeah. then trying to fix it <laughs> so these new uh fish that were introduced are natural predators of lampreys so that's oh, why they, they were introduced them. okay well that's good yes and apparently it was successful and like now shit is a lot better. But for a long time, there were just these like an overpopulation of these fucked up eel worms yeah, swimming no, around. I hate that guy. So anyway, my point is that this is not just some small lake where you and your friends get drunk on a Saturday and someone cuts their foot and gets infected with a weird stagnant lake yeah. bacteria and dies. Yeah, I was going to say that, <laughs> yeah. that like every lake story ends like that. Exactly. Like there was like some sort of accident. Exactly. Like there was some sort of like sewage spill right. that then morphed over the years yes. into a brain eating bacteria right. that climbed up your urethra or something <laughs> fucked up. Okay. So this is not that. This is an enormous natural lake that has connections to several oceans and was formed by a fucking glacier that's amazing so it's really fucking cool yeah okay now that we understand a little more about the site of today's haunting let's get back to our story yeah santa's on a, a christmas ship like i said in october of 1971 a scuba diver scuba diver named gordon set sail on lake michigan with the sole intent of finding a sunken ship called the vernon which sunk in the 1800s According to WisconsinShipwrecks.org, which, by the way, is a really fucking cool website if you're at all interested in shipwrecks. WisconsinShipwrecks.org? Yeah, okay. so many ships. There's just so much in Wisconsin shit with, with yeah. Lake Michigan. Okay. So according to this website, the Vernon, quote, was built to carry passengers and freight from Chicago to Mon Monastique in the shortest possible time and was said to be one of the most elegant vessels on the lakes. Although the steamer was fast for the time and could travel up to 15 miles per hour, the narrow, sharp hull and very deep draft caused it to become unstable when carrying a full cargo at that speed. The builder of the vessel openly admitted to sacrificing stability and buoyancy during the construction in an effort to achieve greater speeds. Why would they admit that? I think, like, when the ship was built, they were like, look, this is going to be the fastest fucking giant ship ever. Right. So we like had to make it less stable. But look how fast it's going to be. Right. Back before everyone <laughs> sued each other, they were like, oh, yeah. this is actually like a cool talking point. They were like, look, I'm going to only live to be 50 anyway, maybe yes. if I'm lucky. So yes. let me take a risk and get on the Titanic. Let me take a risk and get on the Vernon. Right. And if I live, I have a really cool story to tell. Yeah, yeah. that's true. So as a result, many sailors who saw the Vernon after it was launched predicted that the vessel would eventually come to a disastrous end. On October 28, 1887, the Vernon left Frankfurt, headed across Lake Michigan toward the western shore. Fra where is Frankfurt? I thought that was in Germany. So there's a Frankfurt that's in either Wisconsin or Michigan. I didn't look it up. But oh. it, they launch from Frankfurt, 
heading across Lake Michigan toward its western shore. You might not know the answer to this, but how long does it take a ship to get from one side to the other? I didn't look it up, but it, it, when I get into the, the story a little bit later, um, in the early 1900s, a typical journey from like the most common ports was like a week. Oh, shit. Yeah. But if that's if you're going like up the lake. I'm pointing at like vertically up the yeah. lake. Um, if you're just going across it, I mean, they have ferries that like right. take people in, and oh, their wow. cars across. So I don't know how long it would be, but I know going vertically in the story that we're going to get to later, it can right. take like a week. Okay. Wow. So a northeast scale developed and continued to worsen, producing mountainous seas. The large waves swamped the steamer and filled the lower holds with water, extinguishing the fires. This left the vessel without engine power as the storm continued to rage. The Vernon soon foundered and sunk in deep waters between three and four in the morning on Saturday, October 29th, east of Raleigh or Twin Rivers Point. The total number of passengers and crew was most likely 44 to 50 with only one survivor of the wreck. Now, Natalia, I'm going to show you a historical photo of the Vernon to describe to our listeners. But keep in mind, this is not the ship that our story is about. This is the ship that our he scuba diver was found, looking for. But then he was like, oh, actually, Santa's here. Exactly. It's so here it is. weird that he didn't even have a flashlight and he could just feel that it wasn't that ship. Well, look at this feel picture. that it was another ship. Oh, okay. So I'm looking at a black and white old, old, old timey photo. It. It is a ship, and it's got, like, steam coming up out of the top of it. What do you call this? What kind It's of a steamer. Sh- a steamer. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it literally looks like the Mickey Mouse boat that, from his first right, cartoon. Right, the Mark Twain or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Um, it says, Steamer Vernon lost with all on board off Two Rivers Point, October 28th, 1887. So this must be just a photo that was in the newspaper or something? Yes. So this is a photo that was taken of it. If you look closely at it, you can see it's docked in this photo. Oh. So this is a photo of it in happier times chilling at a dock yeah it doesn't look like a typical steamer because the steamer is usually like fat and wide and so this guy was saying that they made it skinny so it'd be faster yes Uh uh-huh it's it's yes take uh the stereotypical idea of a steamer and squeeze it together so that it has sharper edges on the bottom yeah okay so gordon as i said is out looking for this historic shipwreck from the Mm -hmm. 1800s And he begins to interview local Michigan fishermen because they're going to know best about which areas they think a ship might be sunk in because they're out there every day. So he takes a map and he goes around to as many fishermen as he can find and he begins to notice a pattern. Most of the fishermen keep pointing out to him that this one particular area on his map is where they say that their fishing nets keep getting snagged on something underneath the water. In fact, several of the fishermen tell him that they've actually lost nets entirely or had to cut their nets to free them from whatever is underneath the water in that area. And this is pretty unusual because Lake Michigan, as as we've been discussing, is a pretty fucking sick lake. Like, it's yeah. not polluted. Um, it's not man-made. It's right. not a situation like our episode we did on Lake Lanier where there are actual houses underneath right. that were just never completely torn away. This is a natural glacial lake. And so the fact that they're fishing nets are getting snagged so dramatically that they have to cut them in some cases means that there is something underneath that water that's pretty sturdy right but everyone was like fuck that i'm just not gonna fish in this area Yeah, well because they're out there trying to make a living you know what i mean like they're fishermen that are selling fish at port so they're just like okay cut my losses let me get a new net in so i can make my living 
So thinking he's finally found the site of the Vernon, Gordon sets out on his expedition equipped with scuba gear and an underwater flashlight that he had actually duct taped to his sonar tool. So this was a very much MacGyvered situation. Why does he want to find this wreck so bad? I think just for like the mystery of it Uh um i think it's similar to a treasure hunt yeah Yeah. he's like possessed by this idea that he's gonna be the one like he's gonna be the adventurer that finds the vernon he's gonna be on let's get haunted intro and now he is (laughs) so when he comes upon a shipwreck that he thinks might be the vernon as described at the very beginning of this episode his flashlight suddenly goes out And in the dark, he uses his hands to feel across the length of the ship. So you asked, how could he have known? Like, you know, it's super dark. He's just going by feel. So when he gets to the back of the boat, so he's running his hand all along the boat. And when he gets to the back, he realizes that there isn't a propeller there. Like there should be if it's the Vernon, because the Vernon's a steamer. So his flashlight then flickers back on and he makes his way to the side of the ship again. And there he reads the name painted on the side barely visible and chipped with age the rouse simmons the rouse simmons the rouse simmons and even though the vernon is an older ship so you might think oh that's a bummer he only found a ship from 1912 instead of finding one from the 1800s finding the rouse simmons is actually a way way bigger deal because this ship has lived on in infamy and many urban legends surround this ship around the Lake Michigan area. So Gordon just fucking can't believe his luck. He's like, I found this legendary mythical ship that we know really existed, but just has kind of grown in infamy in the years since it sank. And so he's really fucking stoked. He's basically crying. And he would later say to a family member that once he made the discovery, He was super excited, but he was also overcome with this eerie sense of foreboding, and he was worried that he wouldn't make it back to the surface to tell of his discovery. Because people had been searching for this boat for so long, like actual expeditions. Right. So he's thinking, oh my God, I found it. Me, just some dude alone with a MacGyvered flashlight. Right. I better get to the surface before something happens to me, and now I'm just lost with the ship as well. Right. Oh, that's so scary. So he scrambles up. That's the up. first smart thought he's ever had. He found it. And now he's just panicked. Like, okay, I finally yeah. did it. Now what? I need to get to the surface. So he scrambles as fast as he safely can back to the surface. The whole time his flashlight is flickering on and off. And exhausted, he flops down on the deck of his boat and starts crying with relief and amazement. People have been searching for the remains of the shipwreck for around 60 years. And he found it by complete accident. So I'm about to get into the story of the Rouse Simmons and why this ship is so legendary. But first, I'd like to show you some pictures of the shipwreck itself. Yeah. Again, it's still underwater. Yes, it's still underwater and you can actually see it to this day. And again, all these photos are taken from wisconsinshipwrecks.org. So I'm going to show you these photos and I want you to describe Dude, Wisconsin's them. Wisconsin's kind of lit. Le- Wisconsin is the fact that they have this website is so sick to me. I did not know this, but Wisconsin seems kind of lit. So you can exit the photos one at a time oh, as you wow. look at them. Oh, okay. This is much happier than I thought. So I was picturing just complete black darkness and like this photo would just be of like like a, a six inch circle of what the flashlight could see and it would just be like some chipped paint on the side of a boat. But no, actually this must be during the daytime or something because it yes. is... It is very light. Like you can see from one side of the ship to the other. And it looks like one, two, three scuba divers are in this particular photo. 
Um, and I can see all of them. And yeah, this is a huge shipwreck and it's uh, resting on the sea floor and there's like a bunch of boards and stuff on it. Um, yeah. So these are modern photos taken from semi recently with yeah. good equipment. And you're right. It's during the day and it's during a time of the year where visibility is really good. Yeah. And I'm I'm seeing what they're seeing. It's literally a ship on the ground. It's much smaller than the steamer, though, for sure. Um, but it's still a big ship. It's about the size of maybe 800 bathtubs. <laughs> I would say uh, perhaps 1 million rats. Right. <laughs> it's, uh, it, yeah, it's, I don't even know. I'm trying to think of like what you would, like what I could compare that's like the same shape but and size, but there's not really anything. It's much bigger than a car, but it's smaller than a house. That's all I'm going to say yes. about it. You know it's what? pretty it's, big. It's about the size of like a, a mobile home, maybe like a yeah. big double wide. I feel that. Yeah. I, I think that's a good frame of reference. So now that we've heard the story about the ship's discovery and seen some photos, are you ready to hear the story of the Rouse Simmons? Yeah, because you're telling me there's a body of a Santa in there. During the 19th century, Chicago was one of the busiest shipping ports in the world, which some wow. people may be surprised to know, but it makes a lot of sense because, like I said, in the late 19th century, shipping containers and big barges could come in from the Atlantic Ocean and dock in Chicago. See, I just didn't know any of this. I thought Chicago was like landlocked, like in the middle of like some random place because right. it's in it's in Missouri, right? Or Illinois. It's in Illinois. It's in Illinois. Yeah, it's in Illinois. And I thought that Illinois is not on a, a port. So the upper right portion of Illinois uh, comes up against Lake Michigan. I have family from Illinois. Like, so this Isn't that means, cool? Yeah, but this means that, like, I missed out on, like, a cool part. experience. Yeah. Well, I think Chicago's huge, too, because I've been to Chicago, and we did not go to Lake Michigan when I went. Okay. So I think it's just, like, a really fucking big city. Well, I just am getting more respect now yeah. for, for Milwaukee and Chicago. Totally. So ships docking in and out of the port would bring all sorts of goods, from food to furniture to building materials to basically anything practical you can think of that a large urban city might need. Mm -hmm. But you may be surprised to know that one of the most popular and lucrative commodities during the 19th century was actually Christmas, Christmas trees. trees. I have heard that Christmas was commercialized in the early 1900s. And like before that time, we didn't do Christmas trees. We didn't do like gift wrap. We barely did gifts. Yeah. Yes. And that it was actually like also like weirdly enough, the Coca-Cola industry, the Coca-Cola so commercials Co that, yeah, Coca that like uh, made Christmas more commercial or something. So I think Coca-Cola made Santa. Made Santa. Yeah. But uh, or made like the modern made version Santa that famous. we see today. Yeah. But Queen Victoria is the person who made Christmas trees. That's popular. true. She yes. had a Christmas tree and then everyone saw it and they were like, they have a Christmas tree. So we I want a Christmas, want a Christmas tree. tree. Right. Because it was this German tradition and she married a German. Right. And then she was like, oh, I want you to like partake in some of your traditions yeah and then they took a photo in front of the christmas tree and everyone else was like holy fucking shit we need to get on this right now that was like before instagram yes that is yeah. how she was a trendsetter right man. yeah so according to wisconsinshipwrecks.org quote each year several sailing ships ended their season by loading evergreens in northern wisconsin and Michigan's Upper Peninsula, which were the sites of the nearest evergreen forests, and set sail for Chicago, supplying Christmas trees to families living in the city for the holidays. 
which is kind of a cute tradition, right? So mm-hmm. these these big ships with these sailors on it, you know, they're in the wintertime going up, getting trees from the forest, right. bringing them down to the people in the city. Right. It's a very magical. Very. I, yeah. know, I love it. Very I'm magical. I'm sure it was horrible and they like lost fingers and stuff, but it's romanticized in my mind. Yes. It's romanticized in my mind, too. And I'm kind of upset that we don't get this tradition. <laughs> so many of these Christmas tree ships would load up on pine trees and once docked in Chicago, sell their trees to wholesalers. So kind of like, I don't know if um, you've ever been to like a Christmas tree farm. I'm sure yeah. you have. Yeah. We have one in Santa Paula in California. And I remember going there as a child. You go, you pick out your tree, you cut it down. Right. So there were some Christmas tree lots uh, in Chicago that would buy these trees directly from the ship and then resell them. But a few ships acted as floating Christmas tree farms. Oh, that's farms way cooler. I would go there. Where the public could actually climb aboard a ship and wander through thousands upon thousands of evergreen trees, often stacked so tall and so thick that you actually couldn't even see the waters beyond the boughs. That's so magical. Super magical. And they would find the perfect tree for their family, buy it, and then cart it home. Very, right. very magical. I like have the chills and it's not even spooky. Yeah. There were two popular captains who frequently sailed the Great Lakes in the 1890s, and they were named August and Herman Schunemann. But before they were successful sailors, August and Herman were just simply brothers who grew up in Wisconsin. Herman was born in 1865, and August was born in 1853. And they were always fascinated by ships, and as children, they were known to hang out on the docks and watch as vessels came in and out of port. And they both dreamed of sailing the waters of Lake Michigan and swore that when they grew up, they would both become captains of their own ships. In the 1880s, August and Herman decided to pursue this dream and moved together to Chicago, which, as I said, was home to one of the busiest shipping ports, not just mm-hmm. in America, but in the world. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to go anywhere to become a sailor, it's Chicago. Right. OK. Over the next 10 years, the brothers worked hard, sailing on many different vessels as part of a crew working their way up slowly through the ranks by sheer willpower and excellent work ethic. This is a real, so like I wrote down here like a little note for myself. This is a real pull yourself up by your bootstraps story that we often hear in olden times. These two little boys from Wisconsin, they're born into a lower income family. They dream of setting sail on the open seas and they decide to take this giant risk and relocate themselves, move away from their families, move away from everything they know and move to one of the largest, roughest cities in America and work their way up the ranks as sailors by hanging out at these docks and taking basically any job that comes their way. Right. And so even like the shitty jobs they're just like whatever you don't have enough sailors guess what i'm coming on the boat i'm gonna fucking do this wow like i said it's kind of romantic like we were saying yeah and the romance just keeps coming when on april 9th 1891 herman married a woman named barbara shindell and together they had three daughters the Mm. eldest was named elsie followed by twins hazel and pearl Mm. august and herman worked as sailors on the great lakes year round hauling mostly lumber, but really any goods that they could to ensure that they were never without work. Their most lucrative work, however, came in November and December of each year when they worked aboard some of these Christmas tree ships that I had mentioned earlier. These Christmas tree ships worked within a very specific window of time. 
Right. They had to set sail late enough to provide holiday trees that wouldn't be dried out by Christmas morning. Yes. But they also had to sail early enough to avoid the horrible winter storms that rocked the Great Lakes at the end of every year. Right. This is why it was so lucrative to work aboard a Christmas tree dangerous ship. dangerous hard. Yes, because yeah. it was actually fairly dangerous work trying to make sure that you hit that perfect window of time. Right. And it was so dangerous to sail during this time that actually pretty much every other industry would just cease trading in the area and meaning that basically christmas tree ships were the only ships out on lake michigan during this time wow and there were only a few dozen christmas tree ships that even did this work this is so haunted to think that that christmas tree that's like bringing your family so much joy and like you know love might have cost somebody their life yeah and i'm sure people weren't even thinking of that they're just like oh wow let's go to the christmas tree ship and pick out our tree like what a fun tradition yeah and people are literally like getting injured, dying, like having a terrible time on the open seas to provide these trees. That's the worst. Being cold is the worst. It is the worst. But they were making really good money. So that's why they were never turning down a job. And also because they had this dream of like, we're going to rise through the ranks. They're passionate. They're very passionate. As I said, the Schunemann brothers moved from Wisconsin to Chicago in the 1880s when Herman was about 20 years old or so and rose through the ranks until eventually they were both captaining their own ships in the 1890s when Herman was in his 30s. Wow. After Herman's twin daughters were born, he took a little bit of time off from work to help his wife as she recovered from a complicated childbirth. So this is like, to me, this is like a very wholesome man. Yeah. And during these few months that Herman was off work, his brother August continued to sail doing these Christmas tree runs and even sending some of the money he made to his brother to help while he was essentially on this paternity this leave. This is, yeah, super wholesome. Super wholesome, like loving brothers that are just trying to like support each other. and Right, and they're giving Christmas trees to people. Yeah, like how could you not root for them, right? Right. Unfortunately, in late November of 1898, August Schunemann was lost during a violent storm near Glencoe, Illinois, while hauling Christmas trees aboard the schooner the S. Thal. The S. Thal was effectively split into pieces when it was overcome by waves in the middle of Lake Michigan and there were no survivors. No. Now, you would think that this tragedy would make Herman more hesitant to continue doing this dangerous work, but actually it sort of had the opposite effect on him. It actually motivated him to go even harder, turning Mm -hmm. his own Christmas tree ship into the most extravagant of them all. Each November, Herman would load evergreens from Michigan onto his schooner, sail south to Chicago, mooring at the downtown Chicago Pier on Water Street, and once safely anchored, he would string up Christmas lights all throughout his ship and even hoist a fully decorated tree from the mast so that the ship itself would look like a large Christmas ornament. Wow. And it was visible even from the main streets, twinkling brightly throughout each night. Wow. He also began to give away many of his trees to Chicago's churches, homeless shelters, and low-income housing projects, likely as a loving and generous tribute in memory of his brother, who was also so generous to him. Oh my gosh, this is so sweet. This is so sweet. And it was even said that if he came upon a family that was too poor to afford one of his trees, which he only sold for 50 cents, um, he would just give them one free of charge. Oh, wow. So if somebody came onto the ship and was like, oh, we're just browsing, we can't afford one, we just came to see the lights and the trees, he'd be like, here, take a treat. Free of charge. That's so sweet. And these acts of benevolence eventually earned him the nickname Captain Santa. Aww. I know. It's so sweet. That is really sweet. As Herman, a.k.a. Captain Santa, grew more successful, he wanted a way to be able to donate more and more trees to Chicago's less fortunate. 
In order to do this, he needed to be able to find a cheaper way to harvest the trees. One of the ideas he had was to go even further north into the evergreen forests, far past where any other Christmas tree ships were willing to go, so that he could cut down his own trees without any competition. This would make the trees cheaper overall because there would be no price competition among the lumberjacks of the area, and he figured that this would help him in his charity efforts because he would be able to afford to give away even more Christmas trees as his profit margins increased. Right. So if this is such a lucrative idea, you may be asking yourself, why is it that no other Christmas tree ships were already doing this? This is dangerous. Yes. So the answer is that the further north you went to get your trees, the longer you would be on the waters while sailing back. Right. And you have that short window and you of have, time. Yes. As we already discussed, there's this very short, small window of time to avoid winter storms and safely get the trees back to Chicago. Now, before we get too deep into this story, I just want to pause for a moment to talk a little bit about the ship, the Rouse Simmons, which is what this episode is centered around. Yeah. So according to Wikipedia, the Rouse Simmons was built in Milwaukee in 1868 by Allen McClellan and Company and was named after famed Kenosha businessman and American politician Rouse Simmons. Mm. And listeners may remember the name Kenosha, Wisconsin from our Beast of Bray Road episode that we did earlier this year. That's right. Yeah. Do you remember me talking about how Wisconsin has um, like cities where the wealthy in Chicago would just go over the border to Wisconsin and like live there? And it was a lot of politicians, a lot of like famous people. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. So this was one of those guys. Okay. So kind of a crossover episode in a way. Wow. So the Rouse Simmons was a three-masted schooner measuring 123 and a half feet long and made entirely of wood. Once built, the schooner was soon purchased by wealthy lumber magnate Charles H. Hackley of Muskegon, Michigan, and joined his sizable fleet. Hackley's ships served across most of Lake Michigan's coastline, and the Rouse Simmons became a workhorse, shipping lumber from company mills to several ports around the lake for around 20 years. At its peak, the schooner was making almost weekly runs between Grand Haven, Michigan and Chicago, just bringing any sort of goods that Mm -hmm. you would need to transfer. So now that we have some background on the ship, let's talk about how Herman came to captain the Rouse Simmons. Yeah. As I said, it was always Herman's dream to captain his own ship ever since he was a small child. During the 19th century, it was a common practice for people who wanted their own ship to go in on one with investors. Okay. And this makes sense because ships are obviously extremely expensive and the average sailor from such a modest background would not be able to afford to buy a boat outright. I just keep thinking of Forrest Gump. So I know that's like after the fact, but I can't not think say what I'm thinking so <laughs> and and similarly the forest I mean Forrest Gump is a very like sweet wholesome movie yeah. I mean there's a there's a lot of fuck shit that happens in that movie right. obviously it's a very sad movie yeah but the uh, relationship between Bubba and Forrest is right. very sweet yes. so actually I do see a lot of parallels here that's a yes. good catch so the Rouse Simmons as I said was initially purchased by this wealthy lumber magnate and Herman was not that sort of guy at all so he didn't know the Rouse Simmons when it was owned by this lumber guy mm-hmm After working as part of the lumber fleet for about 20 years, the ship was eventually sold as steam-powered ships were just starting to become more popular, and the Rouse Simmons uh, changed hands several times. So it wasn't as popular to have these ships anymore um, if you were anyone that had money, because they were all investing in steam-powered ships. Right. It was kind of like defunct technology. Right. So as steam became the preferred method of transport because it was faster and more efficient, a lot of these old wooden schooners started being sold and resold and changed hands. These types of ships became known as tramp ships. Oh, yeah. Which basically just means it's a boat or a ship engaged in what's known as the tramp trade. 
And it's it means that it doesn't have a fixed schedule. It doesn't have established ports of call. It just kind of picks up odd jobs. Okay. And so a tramp, in case people don't know, comes from the British meaning of the word tramp, which refers to a beggar or vagrant. So in this context, an ocean tramp or tramp ship just it's refers... Like a beggar ship? Yeah, it refers to any vessel that's engaged in a regular trade. So right. it takes odd jobs. It gets money where it can, mostly a cash business. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's kind of a shade, though, you know? I mean, but I think in olden times tramp was just like hey you're like the local guy that takes any job like, right because yeah. if for some reason I always think of a tramp as being like a hobo with a stick on their back that has like the little bag oh yeah tied to it and um, then there's that song by super tramp you know yeah or yeah. there's lady in the tramp yes yeah and in so I guess it makes sense that maybe perhaps if you were like a drifter, you would take odd jobs. Totally, because you have to survive somehow, right? Yeah. And I think also, I mean, I don't want to get into a political conversation, so everyone chill out as I say this. But <laughs> I will say that um, probably government services were not that great back then. Right. And I know that we have room to improve, but I don't think there were necessarily like homeless shelters or right. like, you know, as in the way that we think of them today. Yeah. Or like welfare services and stuff like that. Okay. Okay. So... Back to Herman. Herman started off going in on smaller vessels, and as he grew more successful in his trade, he would upgrade to bigger and better ships to maximize the amount of Christmas trees he could bring to port each winter. Eventually, he came upon an opportunity to captain and invest in the Rouse Simmons. In 1910, Herman bought an interest in the ship and used it in the Christmas tree trade. Also in 1910, Herman created a new business known as the North Michigan Evergreen Nursery, which is what his Christmas tree farm aboard the ship became known as. By 1912, he was able to increase that share to one-eighth of an ownership in the ship alongside his friend, Captain Charles Nelson, who also owned an eighth of the ship, and the remaining three-quarters of the ship was owned by some random businessman who, like, mm. is not relevant to the story. Right, okay. Also in 1912... Herman purchased about 200 acres of evergreen forest way far north in Michigan to go ahead with his plan of traveling further north than any other Christmas tree ship so that he could cut out the middleman, maximize his profits, and be able to justify giving away so many trees to charity. Because remember, he's not the only person involved in this business venture. Right. It's a bustling business. Yes. uh, The ship is also owned by one other captain, his friend Captain Charles, and a random businessman. And these two partners of his were not super stoked on Herman's generosity, so he was kind of under a lot of pressure to justify giving away all of these trees to Chicago's poor and needy. Yeah. So if he buys this tract of land in northern Michigan and tells his business partners, hey, I came up with a solution. Like, don't worry about it. Now everyone can be happy because I own my own evergreen forest. We're going to sail up there, chop down the trees, sail back, sell them at a higher profit because right. now we don't have to pay some random Christmas tree farm to get them. And then we're all making money and I can still give my trees away to the poor. Mm-hmm. So his business partners told him that they would only be okay with this if he hauled as many trees as possible that could possibly fit on the ship to further maximize profits. Okay. So he agreed, and this became the new business plan. Since Herman was so generous, newspapers would often write articles about him, referring to him, as I said, as Captain Santa. And Herman really embraced this nickname and was known to even proudly cut out articles from newspapers that mentioned him and keep them wrapped in waterproof oil skins tucked away in his wallet 
And he kept this, his wallet stored in his coat next to his heart during his journeys to remind him who he was doing these dangerous journeys for. To remind him he was Santa. To remind him that like, yeah, I'm doing this out of an act of charity. Right. People appreciate me and that's who I'm doing this for. Yeah. Isn't like, what do you think of that? He's providing free trees. Right. And like, and a tree is not just a tree, right? It's it's a symbol for a lot of poorer families in Chicago, they're probably thinking, wow, I can give my child a Christmas, right? Or I get to participate in this tradition that normally I wouldn't be able to participate in. I'm sure it's like an act of humanity, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely an act of humanity. Now we're going to transition into the sadder part of this story. So buckle up. In late November of 1912, Captain Santa set off on the Rouse Simmons with a crew of men to his evergreen farm in northern Michigan with the intent of bringing back another load of Christmas trees to Chicago. Natalia, I want to show you a photograph of Captain Santa and two of these crew members taken just before he left on this trip. Now, I want to add an asterisk after that sentence that I just said because I found one source that said this is actually a photo of him from 1909, but I found another source that said it's from 1912. So so this this could have been what they looked like when they set off that. It could have been, according to one source. You might not know the answer to this, but... Is this the first time they're going to do this new plan of the place far away? Yes. Okay. So Captain Santa's in the middle. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. He's got one of those faces that really strikes you. He, yeah. I'm looking at a black and white photo of three men, and it's like, Literally every single one of these people look like they're on the Polar Express. Yes. You know that movie with Tom Hanks? Um, Oh, my God. They really do. Yeah. They all are wearing, like, long trench coats with pocket watches, and they've got those, like, little newsboy caps on and really, like, early 1900s mustaches that are, like, really long and kind of curly. And, yeah, he's the one in the middle. Yes, he's the one in the middle. He does have a really kind face. I can see why people would call him Santa. He's, you know, kind of glowing. He has, like, really round sort of face. and yeah, like, like really rosy. Rosy cheeks. Exactly. Warm. And he does look warm. He literally looks like Santa. He looks like if Santa were just a little bit hotter. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, like. Because he doesn't have the giant old man beard, but he has the big like mutton chops, I think. Right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And he he definitely looks. I wonder. OK, so you know how there's always like those Christmas movies where like there's a guy who's like Santa, but it's yeah. like really he's secretly Santa. It kind of looks like that. Yeah. And the story is making me think that he, this is really Santa. And now I'm sad because Santa's dead. Wait, that's actually a really cool conspiracy twist ending to this. Yeah. Okay, let's put a pin in that because I'm intrigued by that theory. Right. So this particular year, 1912, Uh less than five other Christmas tree ships were willing to attempt this voyage because the weather had been less than ideal. And the Rouse Simmons was the only vessel willing to go so far north to harvest trees. So normally there's like a few dozen. Yeah, this is Red Flag City. Yeah. And this year there's only five, about five. The next part of the story is equally shrouded in myth and mystery. Okay. What we do know is that the Rouse Simmons made it safely to Thompson, Michigan to gather its evergreen trees. Those who witnessed it pulling out of the docks in Thompson were quoted as saying, quote, The ship's cargo hold was absolutely crammed with trees, to the point where nothing else would fit in the hold. 
Even more trees could be seen stacked up to eight feet tall on her deck. It looked like less of a ship and more of a floating forest. Mm -hmm. It was estimated that the Rouse Simmons pulled away from the docks near the Upper Peninsula's Manistique, on Friday, November 22nd, 1912, and it was carrying somewhere between 3,000 and 5,000 Christmas trees. Mm -hmm. According to an article written by Tonda Gemeider for MLive.com, the old story goes that by 2.50 p.m. on Saturday, November 23rd, so just the day after it pulled out of the dock, uh -huh. rescuers at the Kiwani, Wisconsin Coast Guard Station had spotted the southbound Rouse Simmons with its half-mast flag signaling distress as it sailed in rough waters through a vicious storm encrusted in ice. So did they rescue it? Because the station was without its gas-powered lifeboat, the staff called the station south of them to see if any of them could help. Two Rivers Station Surfmen, so the name of the station is Two Rivers, and a surfman is basically like the Coast Guard. It just okay. the Coast Guard hadn't formed yet. So these surfmen at this station launched their powerboat to the spot where they thought they'd intersect with the Christmas tree ship. At first, visibility was fairly good for them, but as the skies grew darker, 40-foot swells began to wash aboard their own ship, and gales began to blow, putting their own lives at risk. Nevertheless, the rescue boat did reach the area where the Rouse Simmons should have been. According to a National Archives article, quote, The boat reached the schooner's approximate position shortly thereafter, but darkness, heavy snow, and mist obscured any trace of the Rouse Simmons and its crew. The schooner had vanished. Yeah, maybe it already sank. It was as if the enormous Rouse Simmons with its 5,000 Christmas trees had disappeared, either swallowed by some monster or simply disintegrated into the air as if a ghost ship that had never really existed. Mm. Or it just sank. Yeah. One of the mysterious aspects of this voyage is that we don't really know who the people aboard the ship were, other than Captain Santa and first mate Captain Charles, right. the other guy that owned it an eighth of the ship. Yeah. It is thought that there must have been somewhere between at least five and nine crew members because that would be the approximate amount of people required to navigate the ship. But witnesses who saw the ship pull out of the docks also thought that a crew of lumberjacks had hitched a ride from northern Michigan aboard the Rouse Simmons to make it home to Chicago for the holidays. In any case, for whatever reason, the records and logs normally kept regarding passengers aboard ships was not maintained for this particular voyage. When the Rouse Simmons didn't arrive as scheduled at its port in Chicago on November 27th, Herman's family became extremely worried, and his wife alerted the authorities to his disappearance. At first, many involved in Chicago's maritime scene held out hope that perhaps the Rouse Simmons had made it safely to a different port where it was waiting out the storm. But as the days turned into weeks, it became clear that something had gone terribly wrong. Despite their best efforts, no traces of the Rouse Simmons were found, and Herman's family was left with the heartbreak of not knowing what had happened to him. Hmm. On December 5th, 1912, a headline in a popular newspaper read, Christmas ship lost on the lake with approximately 17 on board. Hmm. And another article referred to the loss of the Christmas ship as, quote, the year Chicago didn't have a Christmas. Hmm. Soon after this headline ran, Christmas trees began washing up on the shores of Michigan. Oh. And when I read this, I just got a pit in my stomach. Yeah. Like this family is not sure where they're yeah. like where the, their dad is. And now all of these Christmas trees just start washing ashore. Right. 
Then something even darker happened. According to journalist Tanda Gemeider, a message in a bottle <gasps> believed to be from the Rouse Simmons crew washed up in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. The bottle was corked with a tiny piece of pine tree. So like someone had cut off a piece of the trunk of a pine tree. Natalia, can you please read the message that was found in the bottle to our listeners? (sighs) It said, oh God, no, this is horrible. Jesus Christ. Okay. It says, Friday, everybody goodbye. I guess we are all through. During the night, the small boat washed overboard, leaking bad. Invald and Steve lost too. God help us. Okay, so that's definitely... Oh, I get it. They're on the boat and their lifeboat got lost yes. in the storm. And the, and and the ship is water. leaking really bad. And they've already lost two people. Yeah, two people got washed over already when this message was written. <sighs> and if that wasn't eerie enough, another message in a bottle was later found around the same time that some also believed to have been written by the first mate of the Ralph Simmons. Natalia, can you please read this message to our audience? Sure. It says, These lines written at 10.30 p.m. Schooner R.S. ready to go down about 20 miles southwest of Two Rivers Point between 15 to 20 miles offshore. All hands lashed to one line. Goodbye, Nelson. All hands lashed to one line. What does that? I think it means that everyone's hanging on. By one, on one. On one line. On one rope. Yeah. And it's really cold. They're going to freeze to death. Gemeider goes on to write in her article that the next clue as to the fate of the crew of the Rouse Simmons would not be found for another 12 years. When in 1924, Captain Schunemann's wallet came up in the net of a fishing trawler. Wrapped in oilskins and still containing the cutouts of articles about Captain Santa, the wallet was well-preserved and later returned to his family. That is so sad. That's awful. Oh, my God. That also just seems like something so improbable that would only happen in a movie. Yeah, like Two messages in a bottle and your wallet. Yeah. Yeah. So Christmas trees continued to wash up along the shores of Lake Michigan by some accounts for up to 20 years after the disappearance of the Mm. Rouse Simmons. And for many years following the disaster, fishermen in the area reported pulling up conifer trees in their nets. Mm. When our scuba diver from the beginning of the story, Gordon, finally found the remains of the Rouse Simmons, hundreds of barren Christmas trees were found, still locked away in the ship's cargo hold. Wow. And some of these trees actually had preserved pine needles still on them, not yet decayed or damaged by the tumultuous waters. Wow. Something that was deemed very unusual by archaeologists who examined the wreck. Haunted. Very haunted. While we can never know for sure what exactly happened to cause the sinking of the Rouse Simmons, experts who dove down to gather evidence of the wreck guess that perhaps the ship's mizzen mast may have snapped off as it sailed. And I didn't write this here, but there are a ton of other theories. Some people think the weight of the Christmas trees actually like uh, broke the deck because when the shipwreck was found, there were holes in the deck. Right. But other people say, well, it's a six, you know, 60-year-old ship when it was found, like a yeah. shipwreck. Of course, it's going to have holes in it, right? Because right. people may have dropped anchor there or other stuff may have hit the boat over the years. And other people say, no, what actually happened is the steering wheel broke off because the wheel was found in a different area than the ship. 
Um, I mean, there's a lot of different theories about what happened. And in one thing I read said that um, Captain Shunamon or Herman or Captain Santa, as he was known, he actually was in quite a bit of debt and had just been sued for like for not paying a debt mm-hmm. and so because of that he had skipped out on recocking the ship which i guess was something you normally do every right. year so people were thinking maybe it wasn't as watertight yeah. and that is ultimately what led to his demise but whatever the case as i said there are many urban legends and tales surrounding the mysterious disappearance of the rouse simmons so let's get into some of them okay According to the article by Long Acre for Prologue magazine that I cited at the beginning of this episode, quote, one of the legends associated with the disaster was that prior to its departure from Thompson, rats living aboard the ship were seen making their way to dry land as if they had a premonition of its doom. Moreover, some of the crew was rumored to have deserted the ship prior to its departure because they felt that something bad was about to happen. In an article for hauntdetective.com, according to sea lore, rats aboard a ship is actually a good omen, and rats are considered by some to be the wisest of mariners because they actually don't like water. And so rats will get off of of objects if they feel that it's going to sink. Right. Apparently, Captain Santa watched the rats leave his ship, and he watched members of his crew leave his ship on the docks of Thompson, Michigan, and bystanders begged him to follow suit and not set sail for Chicago. But according to interviews conducted in a documentary about the Rouse Simmons, quote, Schooneman stated that the people in Chicago have to have their trees for Christmas and bravely set sail despite the bad omen. Adding to the sense of foreboding around this particular Christmas tree run, other rumors state that both Captain Charles Nelson and Captain Santa had promised their wives that this would be their final Christmas run ever, as both wives felt that this was, like, going to be a terrible disaster. Yeah, it's too too risky. Too risky. Another part of the mystery of the Rouse Simmons is based in the tales that many living along the route of the ship have reported. According to Gemeider's article... Quote, some Great Lakes mariners claim to have seen the three-masted schooner appear out of nowhere. A ghost ship. Then disappear just as silently. A ghost ship. A ghost ship. Yeah. Other ghostly visits have occurred in Chicago's Acacia Park Cemetery, where the captain's wife Barbara is buried. And according to journalist Longacre, quote, visitors to the gravesite claim that there is the scent of evergreens present in the air. Mm-hmm. According to HauntDetective.com's article on the subject, it is also rumored that after much of the crew and passengers refused to sail with Captain Santa and Nelson to Chicago, there were actually a total of 13 passengers left aboard the ship, which is a bad omen. Mm -hmm. Haunt Detective further states that, quote, it is also considered good luck to have a horseshoe nailed to the craft with its open end pointing up in order to hold the luck in. Yeah. It is said that if the horseshoe is upside down, bad luck, all the luck falls out. Yes, that then the ship's luck is running out. It is interesting to note that when the wreck of the Rouse Simmons was finally discovered by the scuba diver, Gordon, in October of 1971, he said that the horseshoe hanging in the ship was was upside upside down down by a single nail. No, that's why you always put two nails Of course, it is unclear if the horseshoe was in this position before the ship sank or if it gradually settled in this position after being submerged in 172 feet of water for nearly 60 years. 
Either way, it did seem as though the aging ship's luck had definitely run out. Yeah. Haunt Detective continues, quote, A friend of mine named Ellen Rohr recounted a story that she had heard from her great uncle. Her great uncle was born in 1909, just three years before the Rouse Simmons was lost. He grew up near the area and would go down to the Point Beach Lighthouse to pick choke cherries from the trees near there. He told Ellen that the people would go down to the lakeshore, usually on Christmas Eve or Christmas morning, just before dawn, to try to catch a glimpse of the ghost ship. Wow. It was described as an old ship with tattered sails that would just bob there on the waves before disappearing. Cool. Someone would see it and it would just disappear. He said that many times people would claim to see a person waving a lighted lantern back and forth on the (gasps) deck. And this person was thought to be the ghost of Captain Santa, whose body was never recovered, (gasps) by the way. Nowadays, the memory of the Christmas tree ship and Captain Santa still lives on. According to Longacre, each year in early December, the final voyage of Captain Schunemann and the Rouse Simmons is commemorated by the U.S. Coast Guard cutter Mackinac, which makes the journey from northern Michigan to deliver a symbolic load of Christmas trees to Chicago's disadvantaged. The anchor salvaged from the wreck now sits at the entrance to the Milwaukee Yacht Club, and that is the story of the Christmas ship disaster and the demise of Captain Santa. Wow. Thank you for telling us a story where Santa literally dies. Yeah. You're welcome. To get us into the Christmas spirit. No problem. Okay. And, and wait, before I ask you about your thoughts, I want to cite my sources really quickly. Wikipedia.org, WisconsinShipwrecks.org. An article entitled, These Must-See Photos Show Lake Michigan Covered in Beautiful Shards of Ice by Sarah M. Maniusko for USA Today. An article entitled, The Christmas Tree Ship, Captain Herman E. Schunemann and the Schooner Rouse Simmons by Glenn V. Longacre for Prologue Magazine, Winter 2006, Volume 38, Number 4, <laughs> published to archives.gov. An article entitled, Michigan's Famous Christmas Tree Ship Sank 108 Years Ago Today by Tonda Gemeiter for MLive.com. And an episode entitled Christmas Tree Ship from December 22nd, 2014 by Stuff You Missed in History Class Podcast. Lovely. Natalia, what are your thoughts on this story? Okay, I just have a crackpot idea that I'm just going to blurt out. Do it. That's what our show is. Yeah. So the fact that the wallet was found 12 years later, just perfectly in a fisherman's net, to me seems very fishy. Not intended, but yeah, that's the only word I could think of to describe it. Seems suspicious. Yeah. Sufficious. Seems suspect. And I, what if, bear with me here, what if Captain Santa faked his own death because he had a bunch of insurance stuff that he owned, remember? Oh. And so then he faked his own death, whatever, did these two message in in a bottle things and then literally he was the person 12 years later who found the wallet and he like disguised himself as an old fisherman well i will say that his family was like devastated by this loss and didn't get any money from him dying and uh they were kind of destitute and so the people of chicago were like hey how about uh we allow you to rent out one of these christmas tree ships and sell christmas trees Uh every christmas and so they did that for a long time um and and then eventually, like, everybody died, right, of yeah. old age. Yeah. Okay. 
But that's a good theory. I thought you were going to say, what if he was the real Santa and survived the shipwreck, but had to go to the North Pole? Yeah, that was the second thing I was going to say. Yeah. And Both he good theories. And he, yeah, wanted to make it that he like faked his own death. Yeah. Because he's really Santa. You guys, look Who's at this photo. Look at this black and white photo that Alyssa showed me of these three people with Captain Santa in the middle. Look that person in the eyes and tell me that's not San- the real Santa Claus. You can't. You can't tell me it's not the real Santa. It looks because just it looks like, like him. him. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Well, the last thing I wanted to show you, because it looks like we have three minutes of studio time left, is I wanted to show you this diving video. Okay. So this video is on YouTube, uploaded by Michigan Diver LLC. It's called Diving the Rouse Simmons in Lake Michigan. Okay. And I just wanted you to, to get a feel for what this right. looks like in motion, because photos don't do it justice. Yeah. Okay. I am. Oh, now that I'm seeing it in motion. Yeah. This is really only the size of like um, a semi truck, like as wide as that almost, or as wide as like a train car. It's really not that big of a ship to think that that ship had 5,000 Christmas trees on it is like, I can see why that, um, was a was, bad idea. Yeah, it was a bad idea. And this story really reminds me of this book that I read called uh, Last Man Off. And it's a true story about the sole survivor of a shipwreck that went down in the South Pole. They were fishing for oh, Chilean sea bass. And it is a very haunted book. And that he's basically describes like, oh, what you're saying, like there were so many red flags, but they really were just only cared about profit. Like the fishermen, like they left too late. They didn't want to fill up on gas at the last minute. The boat was too heavy. They didn't want to take, uh, they like skipped all these like safety precautions. Like they didn't unload all of their catches when they should have because they wanted to stay longer and catch more. And the ship started taking on water, but they didn't want to like return to port because they wanted to catch more. And like things just kept getting crazier and crazier until the very end of it and in that book he describes in such detail what it was like to be on this little lifeboat and it's completely dark and the water is like freezing and you're there was like dead people all around him in the lifeboat with him and he was talking about like how his hands were frozen but he was trying to like unzip their uh like wetsuits and stuff and try to put it on himself and you have no idea if anyone's ever gonna find you because what are the odds of finding a tiny lifeboat that's taking on water in the middle of a fucking ocean you know yeah and like by a miracle like literally a miracle a ship found them him and he was the only survivor and this really reminds me of that so if you guys like this story read that book and it's also traumatizing and I could never forget it so someone else needs to go through it but the thing that I want to drive home was how miserable and scary it is to die in cold water alone like that and to just think that all those people were just hanging on a rope waiting for someone to catch them is just, yeah. It's heartbreaking. And I also think it's so, like, chilling that they yeah. they knew they were going to die. It was not a fast shipwreck, you know, right. because they had time to write these letters yeah. and put them in bottles and throw them into the, into the lake. Yeah. It's crazy. Super yeah. haunting to me. Very, very haunting. I also think it's very interesting that people can like smell the scent of Christmas trees when they go visit Barbara's grave. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, that's what I said. Oh. Yeah. Isn't that nuts? That is scary. Yeah, I really just think that was Santa. Right. Well, Natalia, yeah. do you want to do our sign off? 
Sure. Um, hmm, let me think. Okay, BRB gonna go put out some Christmas trees for Captain Santa. Bye. Bye.